Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you have your outline sheets this evening, we're going to be opening up to the topic of understanding Calvinistic theology and reminded that the book of Romans says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways are past finding out. I want us to look at some tension points, some text that might come across as tension points. These are texts that a lot of folks, specifically on the Calvinistic side, will race to uh, when in discussion with regard to uh, where Calvinists uh, lie on the topic of God's sovereignty as opposed to human responsibility. And we're going to look at those texts this evening pretty rapidly, but as we look at them, I'm doing this intentionally as an argument against what a Calvinistic position might be. Okay, so a couple of books that I can recommend for those who are interested in going into more study on some of these topics. I'm going to be uh, depending a lot this evening on a book by Samuel Fisk that was written a number of years ago under the title Divine Sovereignty and Human Freedom. Samuel Fisk, and it was published by Luzo Brothers Publications uh, quite, quite some time ago. There's another book if you want to go deeper on this topic uh, that I've enjoyed reading recently. It's under the title Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism, an Inductive Mediate Theology of Salvation, and uh, trying to strike uh, kind of a middle ground of understanding. Let's, let's, uh, I like the fact that it's inductive. In other words, let's let the Bible speak for itself. Let's not start uh, with the end and then try to prove uh, your uh, conclusions. Uh, this is an interesting book, not, as, not quite an easy read. And a third book, I didn't bring it up here this evening, but might be a help to you if you're interested in this study more or any study on the topic of uh, doctrines that are perplexing. Erwin Lutzer has a very good book out under the title, Doctrines That Divide. And I found that to be a beneficial book in reading along the pathway of what we've been discussing of late. But having spent much time on the history and affirmations of classic Calvinism, uh, I don't think we can really finish up without dealing with some uh, tensions in various texts or passages in God's Word. And we're going to consider some of the frequently cited passages that the Calvinist would go to to prove their theological points. And disclaimer, there's a whole list of passages that the Arminian could go to to try to prove their side as well. And I'll allude to some of those uh, this evening as we move through these because some of them end up being in the same chapters of God's Word. And I don't think that's, in fact, I know that's no error because the Holy Spirit wrote those chapters and keeps us in that tension. My goal is this, that we maintain this tension of recognizing that the God's Word does teach that we serve a sovereign God, that our God is sovereign and He rules in the affairs of men, the book of Daniel says, repeatedly. But we also see in God's Word human responsibility along the way. And so here's the tension, and it's a biblically demonstrated tension that we need to respect. And so, in the midst of that tension, there are certain passages that people will turn to, especially when they're coming from the Calvinistic side to say, no, it's all about the sovereignty of God and tip the balance in that direction. So, we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. I've actually written out little phrases of these of different verses. And if you're looking down through that outline sheet this evening, you could quickly say as I read those phrases from those verses, wow, it sure looks like uh, the sovereignty of God is supreme. And I think I could find myself voting for the Calvinistic side. So let's slow down a little bit and look at those passages. Matthew chapter 20, 
and verse 16, as well as Matthew 22 and verse 14, contains this phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are several passages that passages that we'll see tonight, and this is one of them, that in reading that passage, no one's going to be troubled unless they have a theological presupposition going into the passage. In other words, if you have an opinion about uh, Calvinism in particular, and you read, many are called but few are chosen, you have a theological presupposition that's going to go off as a light bulb in your mind. And what particular part of the tulip, if you will, might suddenly be blinking as you read that verse? Many are called, but few are chosen. What uh, particular element of tulip? Limited atonement, yes, few are chosen, so not all. But more particular here, election, the choosing of God, His election, or maybe even irresistible grace. Uh, People would look at that and say, uh, I think I see um, God's election and the choosing of God in this passage. After all, unconditional election, according to the Calvinist, has along its pathway this effectual call. Many are called, but few are chosen. So sadly, the Calvinists, when they come to this verse, they put a lot of emphasis on the last word, chosen, and less emphasis, as they look at this verse, on the word called. Why? Many are called, few are chosen. The emphasis is going to go for the Calvinist on the word chosen, not so much on the word called. Why? Yes, Rob? So if you have irresistible grace and you are called, you have no choice but to be That's right. And you just caught on exactly what this verse is doing. If you have irresistible grace and you're called, you have no choice but to be chosen. You're going to be one of the elect. If you're reading election into this verse, you have a problem with the first word. And so you're going to bypass that one pretty quickly. The problem is with the word call. Because the word called and the word chosen in this passage are looking at two different groups of people. The many who are called, but the few are chosen, not the same groups of people. In fact, A.T. Robertson explains it quite simply this way. The people of Palestine had been invited by Jesus, but few had responded. That's what this verse tends to mean. How can a person be called, after all, if grace is irresistible and not be chosen? So the Calvinists will look at this verse and put the focus very quickly on the topic of chosen, and they'll talk about unconditional election. But the calling, if it's irresistible, these can't be two different groups. And they are two different groups in the passage. There are the many who are called, and there are the few that are chosen. Oliver B. Green looked at this passage and said he explains the parable of the marriage feast, the Lord in this text. He talks about the called and the chosen, and then Green said, in his marvelous day of grace, in this marvelous day of grace, rather, tens of thousands are hearing the gospel. And by hearing the gospel, they're invited to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, but few are accepting the invitation. Many are being called to the gospel message. The word calls, but they refuse to answer the call. Those who answer the call are chosen to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb by and by. Alexander McLaren looked at the passage and said this, They who do not choose to receive the invitation or to put on the wedding garment do in different ways show that they are not chosen, though they have been called. The lesson is not of 
interminable, insoluble questions about God's secrets, but of earnest heed to his gracious call and earnest believing effort to make the fair garment one's very own, if so being that being clothed we will not be found naked. So again, what happens with that verse is people will focus on the last term, chosen, there it is, election. But we have a problem with called, if that call is irresistible grace, and so I'll take it from the Calvinist side. How would they answer it? They'd say there's a general call and there's a specific call. So this is talking about the general call. And so we can still, the Calvinists would say, we can still fit our theology into this. There's a general call, but only a few that are chosen. But we're going to say, no, time out. The calling here, you have no specificity as to, other than your theological disposition, coming at this and saying that that call is a general call versus a specific call. It's the same word used all through the New Testament. So there's no way to look at that passage and divide it in such a manner. John chapter 6 and verse 44. This is one that comes up often. John chapter 6 and verse 44. The Word of God says, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. Again, this is easy to read with the theological presupposition in mind. And the word draw is the word that's fixated upon. And so which part of the tulip is being considered here? No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. Okay, irresistible grace, correct. So if we examine the context of John chapter 6, John chapter 6 is one of the most beautifully balanced chapters on the topic of Calvinism versus Arminianism or divine sovereignty and human responsibility that you'll find anywhere in in the Scriptures. I love the Gospel of John chapter 6. If I had any chapter that I was going to go to to show a person that tension, remember that's our purpose, our purpose is to say there is a tension in God's Word. And it's a tension that I'm okay with. I can't explain everything in God's Word, and I'm okay with that. I can't explain how irresistible grace and human responsibility converge or interweave because I'm finite and God's word as the God that we serve is infinite. So I'm going to maintain this tension point. And in the maintenance of this tension point, I believe we're walking that biblical line that's been revealed to us. If I had to prove that to anyone, the gospel of John chapter 6 would be the chapter that I go, through, go to uh, pretty much immediately. Verse 44, John chapter 6 and verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's continue reading. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard, I just emphasize the word all for a reason. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. All right, I see human responsibility in verse 45. Yes, there's God's drawing, and the Calvinists would make much of that in verse 44 and say, there it is, irresistible grace, the Father has to draw them. All all you have to do is read verse 45. Yes, but it says in verse 45, all are taught of God, and every man therefore that hath heard, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and hath learned of the Father, cometh to me. There's a responsibility for hearing. There's a responsibility for learning. In verse 45, there's human responsibility. 
juxtaposed right against divine sovereignty, God's drawing, but there's a responsibility for all to hear and for all to learn. Come down to verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Wow, that sounds like a universal invitation, doesn't it? Any man, not just the elect, but if any man will eat this bread. Back in John chapter 5 and verse 40, just before you come to the sixth chapter, in chapter 5 and verse 40, look what Jesus said. He said in verse 40 of chapter 5, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. He put responsibility on the hearer. It seems like the hearer was being stubborn, having heard, but not having believed. But watch the balance here. Let me just illustrate the balance in John chapter 6. Remember, we're highlighting this quickly. Look at verse 37. In John chapter 6, you can see that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Verse 37. John chapter 6 and verse 37. And all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Sovereign work of God, verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which sent him, draw him. All right, there's the sovereignty of God in salvation, but here comes human responsibility because salvation in this passage is clearly offered to all. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Certainly seems like there's human responsibility to come. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's a responsibility for them to come, and I will in no wise cast them out. And then in verse 40, salvation offered to all, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up again at the last day. Beautiful synergy between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, between God's working and our believing that's demonstrated. So, one last thought on that 44th verse, because it comes up a lot. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent him draw, or sent me rather draw him. Remember what the Calvinist teaches? They teach an irresistible grace that if God is drawing, that's an irresistible grace that's been given to you because you're part of the elect. Well, put a focus on that word draw in verse 44 and come over with me to John chapter 12 and verse 32 because that word is being used again in John chapter 12 and verse 32 and you'll recognize the text when we get there. John 12 verse 32, what does Jesus say? If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Same word, draw. But here, it's pretty clear that the drawing is not irresistible. He's drawing all men when he's lifted up from the earth. And it's not limited. He's not just drawing some men. So we realize that the word draw has the same meaning in both passages in one passage, the Calvinists would point out, see there, without the Father drawing, nobody can be saved. In the other passage, we would respond, yeah, but see there, Jesus is drawing all men from the cross. He's drawing all men in the world. Human responsibility is here necessary for them to respond to the drawing that the Lord does. Questions yet? Anybody still awake? Okay, Tony.
Come unto me, all you that are weary. That's a wonderful passage that the Arminian view would, would, would hold to, that this is your responsibility. It's his invitation, clearly given to all. Now you have a responsibility to, to come, to answer that invitation the Lord has given. Yeah. So that would be a better proof text from the other side than from the Calvinist side. Good. Yeah, Jay? Yes, that's exactly right. Jay just said, all men have a calling. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in our hearts. Uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So that's natural revelation. Not all men have had supernatural revelation. They haven't heard the gospel. So we can see in the natural revelations, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And so God has given to us enough for us to be responsible Romans chapter 1, in the day of judgment. But I do believe what you just said. I do believe that when people respond to that revelation that God has given, that God, by His grace, will give them more. The responsibility, once we have responded, the responsibility is on God. That's good. So yes, once we've responded to the revelation God has given, then God becomes responsible to give us more. We'll talk about some of that just a little bit later on under a different heading. But John chapter 10 and verse 26, another verse that's run to by those who are strong on the Calvinistic side. But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. This is a passage that makes sense when you put it into its context. So we're going to come back up to verse 25, and we read, Jesus said, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. There was a decision made, an opportunity given. An opportunity, Jesus has revealed himself to them. He's revealed the word of God to them, and they did not believe. So their opportunity and the rejection of the opportunity presents them then as unbelievers. And so he says in verse 26, you believe not because you're not of my sheep. They had an opportunity to hear the revelation of God. They chose not to listen. In the same chapter, look at verse 9, because in John chapter 10, another one of those chapters where when you read widely in it, you're going to see the other side of the story, if you will. You're going to see a general invitation to salvation that puts the responsibility clearly on men. Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. So verse 26 is not what the Calvinist tries to do with it. The Calvinist will read verse 26, but you believe not because you're not of my sheep. And they'll end there and they'll say, see there, that's a reference to some sort of binding decree of God, which causes some to remain in their unbelief. No, verse 25 tells us that there was an opportunity when Jesus revealed the word of God to this audience and they chose not to believe, and now he's just describing them as unbelievers who are not of his sheep, they're not his followers. Unbelief is simply here the evidence that they're not his sheep. It's not a decree. In other words, the Calvinists would read this verse and say, they can't hear because they're not his sheep. But Jesus is saying, you're not hearing, therefore you're not my sheep. John chapter 12 and verse 39. John chapter 12 and verse 39. Little phrase, 
But again, it goes to the sovereignty of God if you're putting together that argument. Therefore, they could not believe. This is another one of those texts that your presuppositions may be leading you. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. Remember when we talked about double predestination? The Calvinist talks about people being predestined to heaven and people being predestined to hell. Double predestination. So this is one of those texts where the Calvinist will read double predestination into the text. So let's read verses 39 to 41 and put this text into its context. Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Pastor Phelps, that didn't help at all. That makes it sound even more like a judicial hardening. If Isaiah spoke about it and God blinded their eyes and God hardened their heart, isn't God the one who's blinding them? Isn't that a judicial hardening? Well, let's back up to verse 35 and walk into the text a little bit further. Jesus said to them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light. Boy, that sounds like an invitation. So you have this invitation that he's giving for people to receive the light. And after that invitation is given, when we page down, we come to verse 46. And Jesus is still talking in an open invitation way when he says in verse 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. So what's happening here in this text where he says they could not believe because Isaiah said, well, an invitation was being given, an invitation was being given, a message was being shared, a message was being shared. And they were rejecting and rejecting, and as they reject, they become more and more hardened. And so he is speaking about God's judicial hardening. And we see that in other places in God's Word. But I appreciate what G. Campbell Morgan said with regarding this, regard to this passage. He said, it must be remembered that God never hardens a man until the man has hardened his own heart. And he references Pharaoh. God ratified a decision and an attitude to which men had come of their own choice. So remember, invitation, verse 35, a little while the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. But they're rejecting. And as they reject, Jesus is telling them in verse 39, they could not believe because Isaiah said he's blinded their eyes. There comes a point, this is what judicial hardening is, where a person has put off and put off and put off. And God ultimately brings in his judgment. And we're going to see that a little bit later on. So this is a classic tension point passage where you're seeing God hardening, but you're not seeing any absence of human responsibility. Did you catch that? God's not treating these people like robots and saying some are going in this direction and some are going that. An invitation is given, the invitation isn't received, and Jesus is sharing the consequence. Remember, when a person ultimately is destined and goes to hell, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. 
there's a judicial hardening and there's no opportunity for salvation in hell. Even so on earth, there can come a point like it did for Pharaoh where the opportunity was removed and God judicially, judicially hardens the heart. Come over to John 15 and verse 16. John 15 and verse 16. John 15 and verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, I will give it unto you. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Wow, that sounds like election. Not so fast. This is a passage that's speaking about service. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about choosing them and ordaining them to go out as his servants and bring forth fruit. It's not speaking of choice to salvation. It's speaking about choice to service. And we recognize that as God gifts different ones. Some are gifted to teach. Some are gifted uh, with gifts of mercy. Some are gifted in gifts of hospitality or administration. God gives different gifts different ones, different gifts, even so in verse 16, as he speaks to his disciples, he's not speaking about choosing them for salvation. He's speaking to them about choosing them for service. Milligan and Moulton in their International Revision Commentary say, a choice having nothing to do with eternal predestination. Oliver B. Green said it very quaintly, John 15, 16 was spoken to a group of men whom the Lord Jesus had chosen for special ministry. God still chooses individuals to carry out special ministry, but that has nothing to do with being elected to be saved while others are not elected to be saved. Come over with me to Acts 13, verse 48. Somebody sent in this verse as a question, and this is one that can cause you to stumble. Acts 13 and verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. See there? Some are ordained to eternal life and some aren't. Is that what it says? No. In fact, there's an unusual word that's being used in verse 48, that word ordained. Dean Alfred, in commenting on that word, said, this could better be read this way as many as were disposed to eternal life or disposed. Disposed must be determined in the context the Jews had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The Gentiles were disposed toward eternal life. So let's see how that's happening. Come back up to verse 46 and let's get the context in mind. Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, speaking to the Jews, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of unlasting, everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Okay, who's responsible for the rejection of verse 46? The Jews. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained, now he's turning to the Gentiles. And if we read disposed there, we get the context. So the Jews had rejected. He turns to the Gentiles, and they were disposed to eternal life. They came to a knowledge. So national Israel had rejected in verse 46, 
and the Gentiles are accepting in verse 48. The Jews acted according to their own personal responsible choice in verse 46. So we're going to assume that the Gentiles are acting according to their own personal choice in verse 48. Did you catch that? It's a parallel passage. The Jews in verse 46 have made their decision to reject. The apostles are turning to the Gentiles. So when we come to verse 48 and understand the idea of being ordained as being disposed, A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, said, why these Gentiles here range themselves on God's side as opposed to the Jews, Luke does not tell us. This verse does not solve the vexed problem of divine sovereignty and human free agency. There is no evidence that Luke has in mind an absolutum decretum or an absolute decree of personal salvation. This is not saying God has ordained or decreed that these be saved. This is saying, unlike the Jews who were not disposed to hear the gospel, the Gentiles were disposed to hear the gospel or lined up, fashioned themselves as willing. Isn't it amazing how many different passages we've seen where you see these two tension points, human responsibility, divine sovereignty. But if you let your lens just go on one side or the other, you come out being confused. When you see both sides, you're looking biblically, and when you see both sides and say, I can't figure it out, bingo. You're right where you need to be. So let's go to Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. There have been times that people have come out the door on Sunday morning and said to me, Pastor Phelps, are you a Calvinist? And I'll say, why would you say that? Well, it sounded like it this morning. There have been other times that people have come out the door and said, Pastor Phelps, you're not a Calvinist, are you? Why do you say that? Well, it didn't sound like you were. If I hear that, I'm going, I'm probably right where I need to be. I'm a biblicist. And being a biblicist, we see these things from two different tension points. Chapter 16 and verse 14 of the book of Acts. A certain woman named Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. Okay, a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of God. Now, this text says something I think all of us agree about. We all agree, I, th I think, that God opens hearts. Little by little, conviction by conviction, with the impressions of the Spirit of God, this passage says the Lord opened Lydia's heart. I don't have a problem with that. This passage doesn't say he opened Lydia's heart because he chose Lydia and didn't choose others. It's simply saying he opened Lydia's heart. No one should deny that God opens hearts. It doesn't imply that God opens some and closes others. This simply says that God opened her heart. In fact, in verse 14, God tells us how he opened her heart. Did you see it there? How did God open her heart? She worshiped God and heard us. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. She heard the word as it was being revealed and God in his grace opened her heart. That doesn't deny her activity or responsibility. That simply records the goodness of God. If your heart is open, you know that you didn't do it on your own. If you trusted Christ as Savior, you know that God had a work in drawing you and doing that work. Jay? Yes, so she was a person much like um, the uh, centurion in the book of Acts who 
uh, had a true heart to worship, um, but didn't know the light, had not heard the gospel. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. This verse, of course, leads to an assumption that no one ever exercises choice in the matter of coming to God. That there's no choice because nobody seeks. But Paul in this passage is quoting from two passages, actually, Psalm 14, verse 2, and Psalm 53 and verse 3. And in those Psalms, the Word of God is talking about fools who corrupt their way on the earth. He's talking about the outcome of sin and how one of the outcomes of sin is people have turned away and are not seeking after God. He's not saying categorically that there's nobody on the planet who ever asked the question or ever cried out, even in their sinful state, God, would you reveal yourself to me? God, I want to know you. That's not what it's saying. He's saying in a general reference to the sinful condition that because sin has made its mark, People have turned away from seeking after God. Griffith Thomas puts it this way. A reference to the context of these passages will show that the Apostle Paul does not mean to charge every individual Jew or Gentile with these sins. The reference, of course, is to classes and tendencies of sins, whether among the Jews or among the Gentiles, that as you look generically, generally upon the world filled with sinners, no man is seeking after God. Point of fact is, there are many passages in the Bible that say men do seek after God. In fact, there are passages in the Bible that say men should and invite men to seek after God. So, for instance, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Jeremiah 29, 13, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Why would God give an invitation to seek him if nobody will? This passage is describing man's condition in sin, his condition in depravity. They're not seeking after God. It's not saying that no individual has ever cried out in their sinful state with the desire to know God. Hebrews 11 verse 6, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So again, Romans 3.11 Often the Calvinist, in trying to prove a theological point, will read more into the text than the text actually provides. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now the word predestinate only happens in two chapters in the Bible. It happens here as well as in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to just quote H.A. Ironside on this text because I think he's pretty clear about it. Ironside says, God, by his foreknowledge, has predestined all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be conformed to the image of his Son, verse 29. Predestination is never to heaven nor yet to hell, but always to the special privilege in and with Christ. The gospel preacher can declare without any kind of mental reservation the blessed fact that whosoever will may take the water of life freely. This is not at all a question of being allowed to take Christ as Savior. It's an earnest entreaty to do so. In other words, 
predestination here is describing predestined to become like the Lord. Predestined to become like the Lord. Robert McQuilkin, who served at Columbia College for many years, Columbia Bible College in South Carolina for years, and taught the book of Romans for 20 years, makes this statement. There follows a summing up of God's eternal purpose for everyone who's saved. Each one of these has been foreordained or predestined by God's plan for each one. When we have a body like Christ, then is our redemption complete. We're glorified. Since no one is yet glorified, we can see clearly that these words are not speaking of something that has already happened, but describing what God's plan is and what is the process for every saved man. So we read in verse 30, Moreover, him he did predestinate, he called. And those he called, them he also justified. And those he justified, them he also glorified. I think we could better understand verse 30 if we put it this way. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called out. And whom he called out. Why would I read it that way? Because the Calvinist has made so much of some type of irresistible call that when we understand it to be called out, then we understand what this chain is doing. He's predestinated us to what? To come to the image of the Son, verse 29, having called us out and justified those he'll also glorify. It's still happening. Still happening. Chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. This is a fun one. This comes up a lot. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now Romans 9, 10, and 11 all are speaking about national Israel and God's purpose for Israel and the Gentiles. So when we come to this section, Romans chapter 9, verses 10 uh, through uh, 13, and see national Israel in mind, not personal salvation. I'll say that again. When you see national Israel in mind and not personal salvation, you have an answer. For the children not yet being born, having done neither good or evil, verse 11, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that call it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as a written Jacob, that's Israel, have I loved, Esau, have I hated. He's speaking in national terms, and it's not here in this passage speaking in personal terms about personal election unto damnation and salvation. Predestination and election are not being taught in this passage with regard to personal salvation. They're being taught in this passage with regard to God's purpose for the ages. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's God's purpose for the ages as demonstrated in these nations. Still in Romans 9, look at verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. Pharaoh hardened. This is a judicial hardening. We talked about that earlier. Pharaoh has crossed the line. In studying the 
story of Pharaoh, you'll see that some 18 times God reaches out to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then finally you read, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because there comes a point. God tells that to Moses in Genesis 15 and verse 16. God speaks to Moses about when the children of Israel would inhabit the promised land. And he says in Genesis 15, 16, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Israel can't go into the land yet because there's more sin that the Ammonites are going to have to commit because God is patient. But there'll come a time when they'll commit their last sin. Even so, Pharaoh hardened his heart and hardened his heart until God said, that's it. Somebody has said, the sun that shines will harden a brick and melt the wax. It depends on the response of the sun that's shining. And that's true in this matter of judicial hardening. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and so he was cut off. God has power over the clay in Romans 9, and I don't think we have any time to go to these last passages. I may come back to them. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.